And so I think that we're also fooling ourselves a little bit into this idea that we are returning whatever environment to some sort of state of grace. I mean, honestly, the world's natural state is being anaerobic. It was microbes that polluted it and turned it into 21% oxygen atmosphere. So we are to some extent picking and choosing what we want to call natural and, and create. But certainly for, for maintaining, say, Siberian permafrost, I can't see any better solution. If we're prepared to, to take a creature that's never existed before, this mammophant, uh, then, then are we really thinking about moving to a designer world? Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. The prospects of de-extinction are upon us. Long trapped in science fiction and popularized in stories such as Jurassic Park, the technology to bring back extinct species of animals and plants has arrived at a doorstep. More specifically, the technology to bring back hybrid versions of these lost species, to be more exact, as we'll learn shortly. With great power, though, comes great responsibility. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do it. So should we bring back lost species? What are the benefits? What are the risks? What is the larger role in conservation and climate? Joining us today are three incredible scientists. The first time we're doing this sort of roundtable discussion here on Animalia. We have an ecologist who has specialized in invasive species, a parasitologist who you've met before on the pod, and an astro and evolutionary biologist as well. This is a fascinating episode that is sure to spur some of your own philosophical thoughts and questions about life. The extinction is really no longer a question of technological possibility, but it's quickly moving into a debate of ethical responsibility. Let's meet our three incredible scientists right after this short break. If you have not already subscribed to the Animalian Newsletter, you definitely should. Each week we break down three stories designed to be read in five minutes or less that will make you a more informed advocate for this planet. We always focus on solutions, even when we are highlighting a problem. As it's critical, we keep a solution-oriented lens towards the existential threats of climate and biodiversity collapse. With the Animalian Newsletter, you will walk away each week feeling motivated and hopeful that we can and will solve these issues. Subscribe today at www.joinanimalia.com backslash newsletter. The link is in the description. Now, back to the extinction. Okay, so let's first meet our three incredible guests. First up is Dr. Mackenzie Kwok, a world-renowned parasitologist from the University of Singapore who has been on the podcast before. My name is Mackenzie Cook. I'm a parasitologist presently based at the National University of Singapore. Um, and my work is sort of focused on parasite conservation, zoonotic disease spillover, impact of anthropogenic changes on, on host parasite vector pathogen kind of communities. Yeah. And for the listeners, you may be familiar with Mackenzie because he's been on the podcast on our episode about uh, conserving parasites. So you, the voice will probably be familiar to you. Now let's meet Dr. Dave Strayer, an ecologist from the Cary Institute who has a particular expertise around invasive species, something very critical to learn from as we evaluate the merits of essentially creating new hybrid species in the name of de-extinction. 
I'm Dave Strayer. I'm a freshwater ecologist, uh, recently retired from the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in New York State. Uh, I've worked mostly on the conservation of freshwater animals, their, the, the roles they play in, uh, in ecosystems, and then quite a lot recently on uh, invasion ecology. And our third expert is Dr. Lynn Rothschild from Brown University, who is both an evolutionary biologist and an astrobiologist. She has spent a lot of time in her career thinking about the universe more holistically and our role in it. Hi, my name is Lynn Rothschild. I'm a professor at Brown University um, in molecular and cell, and um, I've had a very strong interest in looking for life in the universe for many years, um, and so I've been involved in the founding and development of the field of astrobiology, as well as synthetic biology, particularly for applications to space. Before we get into discussing the different pros and cons of the extinction, let's define it first. So I guess to start, you know, today we're, we're talking about de-extinction and we're going to get into, you know, the prospects, the merits, the, the, the watchouts, um, you know, the potential benefits, the potential pitfalls. But I think it's important first to define it for folks. I think it, the average person probably thinks de-extinction and their brain just goes to Jurassic Park. And there is some some merit there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think to start, I would love to to hear from you from you all. How do you define de extinction, and you know what 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 role in your mind does it potentially play in conservation uh, work going forward? I mean, if you take something like a chair, and all the chairs disappeared in the world, and you made a new chair, no one would talk about de-extincting a chair, you would take this blueprint and you would make a new chair. But life is a very different sort of thing. Life has this genetic continuity that goes all the way back to the origin of life. And when you something goes extinct, that lineage and its information encoded in the DNA is no longer with us. Now, what's tricky is we now have the technical capabilities to figure out what the DNA was of some extinct species and be able to recreate that DNA. And that's where the de-extinction comes in for me. My impression as an outsider is that the, the phrase de-extinction is actually used for a, a, a range of techniques with a range of products. And, and I think when a, reg, a regular person hears the term, we think we're literally bringing a species that was gone in the past and bringing it, that species exactly back into being. And that, I guess, is possible for things that have gone, maybe possible for things that have gone extinct recently, where we may have some uh, frozen material, for example, to work from, some intact material to work from. But in the cases that uh, have received the most press, things like the passenger pigeon and the woolly mammoth, uh, what's coming back is not literally a woolly mammoth or a passenger pigeon, but a modern relative of these species with a little bit of, of genetic material of the target species inserted into the into this. So they're really hybrids that contain some characteristics, we hope, of the extinct species, not literally the extinct species. I'd yeah, also add that when you bring back species, or theoretically you bring back species, right? No species is uh, an island. Species exist in concert with a huge number of other uh, species in the ecosystem. I mean, right. when we think, I mean, I'm a parasitologist, so I think a lot about the, the, the individual's biome itself. 
uh, like the, the biome on the animal itself. And so when we bring back, say, a woolly mammoth, we're missing all of the species that live with it, most of them. The, the biggest species out in the ecosystem are probably there, the, the grasses and the trees and the many of the species that would exist on the Siberian steppe ecosystem are probably still there. But within the mammoth, we're probably missing all the interesting protozoa and fungi and archaea and bacteria that are in its guts. We're going to be missing, certainly we know for mammoths, they, they had bot flies. So we're missing all the stomach bot flies that would have been impacting and perhaps training the immune system of the host. We're missing what probably would have been lice if we take a guess based on what ectoparasites we find on the modern uh, elephants of Asia and Africa. So that if you, if you take someone, say, in a, in a hospital and completely sterilize their gut, you just absolutely dose them with antibiotics. Typically, that has terrible impacts on them. Like to completely lose your microbiome is catastrophic for most people. Um, so I would say, yeah, we can bring back species perhaps, or we can bring back kind of chimeras or something like that. Chimera species, I don't know, hybrid species. Um, but they're going to be missing, certainly at a micro level, their, 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 their microbial blueprint, as it were, their microbiomes, their parasitomes, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a shadow of what a species would have probably formerly been. And there are a couple of points I want to highlight in particular for all of you listening. The first is that when we talk about de-extinction, in the majority of cases, we are talking about introducing new hybrid species, not exactly bringing back past species in their exact forms. These hybrids mix some specific targeted DNA we source from fossils with embryos of similar existing species today. So in the sake of the woolly mammoth, which is getting the most headlines today, the plan from the group behind this work is to implant a handful of specific genes from mammoths, such as their thick fur coat, into the embryo of a modern Asian elephant and bringing back essentially a new type of hybrid mammoth elephant, a mammelephant. The reality is it'll be 2 to 5% mammoth and 95 to 98% elephant, but even 2 to 5% is a big, big deal scientifically and can lead to massive impacts on modern ecosystems, both good and bad, as we're going to learn. The second point I want you to remember is that life does not exist on an island. All life, including humans, are part of larger ecosystems, food webs, and so forth. Every life has direct and indirect impacts on many others. So when analyzing the merits of the extinction, we need to carefully analyze the potential impact on all aspects of the ecosystems they will live in, and even how changes to those ecosystems can cause changes to others as well. We can never fully predict this with any concrete accuracy another topic we're going to touch on, but we need to do our best and need to be as thorough as possible. Let's start with understanding the potential benefits of de-extinction, outside of the emotional one. The emotional one being the joy or pleasure or guilt relief we may experience by bringing back lost species. That's real and valid, but it should not be the driving force behind decisions on this ever-complex and critical topic. I think ecological services is probably the biggest argument, right? So many of our systems, our ecosystems have degenerated from the time that humans first swept out of our cradle in Africa and conquered the world, essentially. And as we went, the, the data seems to show that, I mean, there's some arguments about climate change versus human hunting impacts or human impacts, but it basically looks as though, I mean, to kind of borrow a sort of, uh, I don't know, to paraphrase Tim Flannery, who's an Australian zoologist, they basically had a big barbecue across the globe and they went across and they eradicated 
all the big animals. And the only place you still find big animals, more or less, to any extent to what they probably, the former community was, is Africa, where they evolved with us. Um, so we basically drove across the Earth's ecosystems. We eradicated these huge ecosystem engineers in many cases. And so we have these depauperate dysfunctional ecosystems, which the idea is we bring back some of the species and we can do that via de-extinction or we can do it via say Pleistocene rewilding where we say, well, formerly the steppe ecosystem of uh, Eurasia had camels and it had muskox and it had bison and it had mammoths. And so let's bring back the species that we actually have access to now. Let's bring back Bactrian camels, the two humped camel, let's bring back yak, let's bring back muskox and restore Sega gazelle and Sega antelope rather, and, and bring back those ecosystem services of this mass grazing, this huge nutrient cycling, uh, storing carbon in the soil because there's so much more animal dung being added to the ecosystem. Then of course you bring the animals in and you get all these uh, symbionts that live with them. So you get these dung beetles arriving and the dung beetles bury the dung. And so you're storing even more carbon and, and the dung beetles have hyperparasitoids. So suddenly your ecosystem is getting fleshed up and up and up once you start bringing back some of these big players in the ecosystem. I mean, that's one kind of argument is we can try and restore some of the degenerate functions of our ecosystem, nutrient cycling, browsing. Uh, we know a lot of these species say bison uh, and, and wild cattle do uh, say dust bathing and things. And so by creating these uh, disturbed habitats, you have this early succession of these, or you, you allow the succession of early successional sort of plants and you get insects using these spaces and then they've created these burrows these depressions and so you get frogs and amphibians breeding in them so it's kind of bringing these big actors these large physically large actors and then the idea is that they will bring back some of the degenerated services and they'll be creating ecological space for more sensitive species which can't necessarily create ecological spaces for themselves that that was so beautifully put mackenzie i'd love to sort of keep this conversation not solely focused on large charismatic animals from the Pleistocene though. Um, as a microbiologist um, there, and someone who's dabbled in plants and so on, there, there are many other reasons. There's the scientific curiosity. I, I guess I'll be the first one to mention Jurassic Park. Um, and think a bit about um, plants, for example. And I always preface my remarks about the extinction by saying that if the cacao plant went extinct or you know, the plants that are providing us with tea or some of these other things that we find crucial in our day-to-day -day existence, if you find chocolate crucial and who doesn't, you know, I would think that there would be an enormous impetus for de-extincting these, these plants because they are so much part of our society. Um, rice, you know, you could name the, the top few grains in the world that most of the world depends on. If there was a, a problem where there was an extinction event, you would want to bring them back as quickly as possible. Um, and obviously, the, there are microbes that are of enormous interest. I usually spend my days thinking either far into the future with people off planet or into the deep past four billion years ago. And so I've, in our own research, have been very interested in de-extincting particular genes. So for example, um, what's been done in, in other labs is bringing back genes that are hypothesized to have been in some of the earliest organisms and trying to figure out whether they're optimal at high temperature or low temperature as a way to understand the origin of life. So there are many other reasons. And so I just wanted to balance out the conversation a little bit so that we're not totally 
focused on on the sort of ecosystem services that Mackenzie put so beautifully and much more poetically than I would have. So in addition to the things you you two covered so well, I, I think we have to talk about aesthetics. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of people would get pleasure at just either seeing herds of animals moving across the, the step, regardless of the functions they're performing, uh, uh, or even just knowing that such, such herds exist. Uh, we know that aesthetics and, and related values have been really important in why people value nature. And I don't think we should shy away from that as a value of extinction. And related to a uh, de-extinction, and, and related to that, I think that we can imagine that if if this moves forward, the excitement of being able to 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 undo damage to bring lost animals back to life might attract people and money to conservation in in a way that would be beneficial to science. The other thing I guess I'd mention is that uh, the the technical challenges of de-extinction are gonna have a lot of other benefits besides being able to de-extinct these animals. It's like the space program, you know, we always talk about bringing us tank, but you know, the space program brought us all, all kinds of additional benefits besides putting people on the moon. And you can imagine that if we're able to go all the way from bits of mammoth DNA to something that looks like a mammoth on the step, all those technical advances are gonna have a lot of other uses to us. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And for our listeners too, just touching on a brief point Mackenzie made, I do think they should know the difference and distinction between de-extinction and rewilding. You know, rewilding is the process of whether you brought a species back from extinction or not, rewilding is bringing it back into, you know, its natural ecosystem. And uh, our listeners will be familiar with the story we did earlier this year on what happened to Yellowstone National Park when wolves were brought back in 1995 and the Cascade effects on that ecosystem um, versus de-extinction was specifically bringing back a species of, of plant or animal that uh, is no longer around. Okay, so to briefly summarize, there could be some benefits in the form of ecosystem services such as countering forms of modern environmental degradation. We'll discuss this a bit more shortly in the case of the Siberian permafrost. There could be creating ecological space for other species. There could be byproducts of the technology we developed to accomplish this, such as how there were byproducts of the tech behind space exploration, ranging from freeze-dried food to memory foam. There also could be a potential to excite donors and institutions to invest more money to support and conserve the natural world. Although there's a flip side to this we're going to talk about in just a second. All right, now for the risks and reasons to be wary of the extinction and not rush into it. In terms of jumping into now some of the pitfalls, how should we kind of think of those? And I imagine they, they range everywhere from, you know, sort of the immediate ecosystem impacts of bringing back species. And Dave, like, yeah, as an expert in invasive species, there's probably, you know, very specific points of view you have on this, all the way to going to the technology itself. I mean, humans don't have a great track record of, of not abusing technology um, or, or, or applying it past the point of where it really should be applied, let's say. Um, and so I imagine there's also a risk of this technology kind of, uh, kind of, you know, not being used with the right protocols, if you will, and the right limitations. Um, but yeah, those are a couple of things that come to mind for me, but how, how do you all think about then the, the pitfalls and the watchouts of the extinction and, and, you know, maybe reasons that we shouldn't race into it or we shouldn't do it now? 
perhaps it's too future gazing of but, me, but the one danger is that politicians say we don't need to fund conservation of this species. We can clear this pond or we can dam this river. We can cut down this forest. We'll archive some DNA in the Natural History Museum. And then in a century when taxpayers deem it necessary, we'll bring the species back. And of course the species will never exist again. The species will be this shadow taxon, which will one day maybe come back, but who knows when that day will be. So in one sense, it can embolden policymakers not to engage in conservation today because we could engage in it tomorrow when the balance, when the budget is slightly more balanced or when we're more in the black economically. I'm worried that that's not just politicians. I've heard people say things like that. To me, it's it's the same sort of argument as Mars's, you know, plan B. No, it's not. I mean, the, the very best place on Mars is worse than the, the very worst place on the Earth. And it's the same thing. If you can't keep three whitehorn rhinos alive today that were naturally evolved, what makes you think you're going to resurrect them and then keep them alive? Um, I, I hate to bring this up, but I need to, the obvious pitfall is there is only one type of organism that you can actually de-extinct in its entirety, and that's a virus, and we can do that, no problem. Um, and how can that possibly go wrong, de-extincting an extinct virus? That was obviously met with a, a large dose of, of sarcasm. Um, and so there is the potential for bringing back very hazardous organisms um, I th and the other thing that I think has not been brought up yet, if we do flip this, I'm not used to, to the large charismatic mammals is they have feelings, they suffer pain and so on. And what we're doing is putting them in a highly unnatural environment at our pleasure. And there's been a long history of people creating zoos of exotic species. So what happens when whoever's protecting this area, this Pleistocene park or whatever, decides that this is no longer something that they want to do. They want to build high rises instead. They're going to just cull all the animals and, you know, and get rid of them. Um, what's going to happen to them then? And even in the best of circumstances at the front end, you're talking about very small population sizes. If you're talking about these large animals and you really need a breeding population of a hundred or more individuals. I mean, look what's happened. Well, human interbreeding with the Habsburg dynasty, um, dogs, we see this all the time of uh, the interbreeding and, and the depression, then the um, loss of their vigor uh, and their ability to survive. And so you're talking really, if you're talking about something like a mammoth, not bringing back one, but bringing back hundreds and then they have to learn a new set of behavior from each other. And again, these are sentient creatures to a large extent. Do we really wanna be responsible for that to assuage some guilt that we might have about creating their extinction in the first place? As an ecologist, to me, the central uh, risk here is that we, the, the gap between what we think will happen and what will happen. So Mackenzie laid out some scenarios a minute ago for what people think will happen or might happen if we were to restore a bunch of large mammals uh, to Siberia, for example. Uh, but invasion ecology shows us that we haven't been terribly good at predicting uh, what, what is actually gonna happen. And so, for example, the guy that introduced rabbits to Australia couldn't imagine they would cause any problems. Uh, and, and in fact, they caused huge problems. And so uh, we have to, I think, admit the possibility 
that what will happen uh, will be different than what we think will happen, particularly for strong actors like uh, these large mammals that we're talking about that influence ecosystems in, 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 in many ways. Uh, and the problem with uh, introducing biology is it reproduces. So one of the appeals of a de-extinction is you could put a few mammoths up in Siberia if you were able to overcome the genetic diversity issues that Lynn just raised. And they would reproduce and the benefits would spread and magnify, right? Uh, same thing would happen with the problems though. And so I think we have to seriously consider how we're gonna predict what's going to happen with these de-extinctions, how we're gonna monitor what actually does happen and what we're gonna do about mismatches between our, our, our goals and, and, and the reality on the ground, how we're gonna manage them. And this may introduce some of these suffering problems that Lynn just raised uh, a minute ago. If we have uh, you know, 100,000 passenger pigeons and it goes horribly wrong, we introduce a problem with removing them. Now summarizing some of these points. So first, de-extinction has the potential to defer capital and resources needed now to protect biodiversity collapse in the name of, well, we can always bring them back later. So there's one risk there. Another is a reminder that life has sentience. We're not bringing back tables and chairs here. These are life forms with consciousness that feel pain. And no sentient being deserves to be anyone's scientific experiment if not properly cared for through its entire life cycle. Then there's the harsh lessons we've learned from invasive species. Dave mentioned how destructive rabbits have been to Australia. Well, this is because they are not native. And once they arrived, they overgrazed on many plants, leading to soil erosion and depleted resources for existing wildlife. Now imagine what could happen if we bring back new hybrid species we have zero experience with. And then of course, viruses. If we ever needed a reminder that zoonotic viruses can be a serious problem, look no further than COVID-19. And if you're in the camp that this virus in particular was definitely created in a lab and not from an animal-human conflict, even though nearly all the evidence supports the latter, look at Ebola, look at SARS, look at H1N1, and many others of the last 20 years that all came from human-animal contact. Usually, our contact with wild species we should be leaving alone, or our contact with livestock turning ill from the horrific conditions of industrialized agriculture. If we rush into bringing back new hybrid species, with it will likely come new viruses as well. Some we may be able to predict, but mostly viruses we will never see coming. Once you alter the community of, of uh, organisms within your ecosystem, then your risk of zoonotic disease, I mean, th throw in more and more actors, and of course, your risk of them acting as reservoirs to some extent magnifies, right? Um, but of course, there is the uh, opposing idea that when we create rich ecosystems from depauperate ones, that our disease risk may actually decrease with what's called the dilution effect. So the more hosts we have, the chances of them being uh, good reservoirs for nasty zoonoses, which is a tiny, infinitesimally small proportion of the total path of uh, microbes on Earth. The suggestion is as we expand the richness of these ecosystems, that the risk of zoonotic spillover may decline. So it's kind of a, not necessarily a terribly bad thing as far as disease goes, but I'm sure Lynn will probably have some uh, rich ideas on this, some good ideas. I was just going to say, it's, le it's the least of our problems um, <laughs> in that I think everyone has um, had a lot of experience the last two years and how quickly viruses evolve. 
And so we don't even need de-extinction to have problems with viruses outrunning us. But if you don't mind, James, for just a second, I wanna make it clear to the listening audience um, why viruses are so different from everything else we're talking about. Everything else we're talking about has parents that then have offspring and so on. And so you have all sorts of things that go into your offspring. Um, you don't just have a naked piece of DNA. But with the virus, all the information to create a new virus is strictly in that DNA. And so the DNA goes into a host cell, the virus injects it, and then the host cell is taken over to actually produce a new virus de novo. And that's why it is the only organism at this point and possibly forever that we will literally be able to de-extinct in its entirety. And it's not a matter of putting the um, lid back on now, it's, it's something simply that we can do. We have that information and it's, it's not all that hard, but it's a different sort of discussion, but just so that it's clear to the audience that they're, they're, it's a different sort of creature and therefore you can completely de-extinct it. Everything else, as has been pointed out, it really, it's, it's wink, wink. We're not really de-extincting a mammoth. And that's why this becomes, there's so many reasons that this can go horribly wrong. Um, one other issue, James, that might be worth uh, mentioning is the uh, action-inaction dichotomy here. So for uh, an, a species that's on the brink of extinction, but still around, we may be faced between undertaking a conservation action that's very risky, that makes us feel uncomfortable, like bringing the Cal, all the California condors into, into a captive breeding program. Very risky. We don't like doing it. Versus inaction and letting them disappear on their own. And so th th that's often given as a reason why we undertake uh, conservation actions that are risky that may make us queasy. Because the alternative of no action is going to lead to the loss of the species. With the species is already extinct, we don't have that uh, dilemma exactly. There's a strong asymmetry now between action and inaction. So if we decide we're going to de-extinct a species right now on the basis of incomplete information about its, uh, about its ecological impacts or, or, or whatever, and we make a bad decision, we've made it and it's gonna be hard to reverse because we're gonna have passenger pigeons flying all over the place. However, if we decide we're not gonna take action, the species is no more extinct tomorrow than it was today. And so there isn't that urgency to act that there is with respect to the conservation of species that are on the brink. And, and so we have a little, bit of, a little bit of more luxury of a little bit more time to, to, to think and develop our models and develop our uh, sort of pilot studies and things like that with these de-extinctive species than, than we do with it when with living species. The thing that stands out to me is that I can't make sense of my, my brain. So maybe you all can help me is it environments, uh, ecosystems, they evolve, they change, they're, they're dynamic, right? They're not static. And it, I have a hard time understanding why a species that has not been around for quite some time. So, you know, a, a non-recent de-extinction would succeed in an ecosystem that is like foreign uh, to, a, to a degree. What, 
what gives us, or at least those proponents behind de-extinction, the confidence that we can bring back species and put them into ecosystems that have naturally evolved as all ecosystems do since they were around and believe that they can succeed alongside the other species in it. That's something that I, I've had a hard time wrestling with uh, in my brain. I think that there is actually uh, some, some reasonably good evidence that ecosystems perhaps don't degenerate to a, 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 such a state that they're completely unsavable if you bring species back. So, I mean, a nice example, if I'm correct with this, is um, on Mauritius, where of course um, uh, species have been lost, right? And, and previously there's dodos and there's other species that were roaming around and they were important seed dispersers. And one of the species, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Mauritius, um, was uh, the Mauritius uh, ebony tree. And so they have these fruits and essentially the fruits just drop down. And if there's no disperser, the fruit grows right next to mum or dad. And uh, th that's not so great. If you're a tree, you want to be moved far away from your parents so you're not competing for resources. So certainly on one island, they brought back tortoises and the tortoises eat the fruits and then the tortoises wander around the island and they disperse the fruits. And so this tree, which was formerly incredibly rare, these ebony trees, which were sort of hurtling towards extinction, are now recovering beautifully. And the ebony forests of Mauritius are recovering beautifully because suddenly you've brought in, it's in this case, it's a, it's a proxy, um, but you've brought in a species that's basically restoring this dispersal service, which was previously lost. I think when it's this kind of animals acting as vectors of seeds and fruits and things, maintaining them and, and, and demonstrating the, the impacts they can have is very, very uh, obvious to some extent, particularly for, for frugivorous species um, that need to be dispersed around the ecosystem. Um, so I, I, I really don't think that ecosystems change that much. And I think that you probably, if some ecosystems, sorry, don't change that much. And I think that in some cases, there's good evidence that bringing back these species actually will restore um, important services and, and important interactions and dependencies other species in ecosystems. But, but this is going to be something. If I could play up with, I was just, I was just going to play what I think you're about to say, Dave. So please. Well, I was just going to say it. it, it it's going to depend entirely on the species in the ecosystem. As a Weasley ecologist's answer, uh, and and so if we know something about the climate envelope that these animals can tolerate, for example. And we know about modern and future climates that we're likely to see. You can see whether their climate and envelope is going to exist on the planet. And you're going to have some, we hope, some notion about the kinds of strong interactions that might, uh, that might determine the species' success as well. I think that a lot of the species have been talked about uh, for de-extinction, at least that I've seen, are generalist enough that there aren't any fatal problems there. But... You know, we were talking about parasites a little earlier. Obviously, uh, you know, if it, I, my, the mussels I study are parasitic on uh, on fish. Uh, we have extinct fish in North America, and no amount of, of restoration is going to get those mussels back into North America if uh, if their host is gone. Right? I mean, so there's an example where the ecosystem's moved away and is no longer presents a viable habitat for the species. So I don't think. I don't think you're going to be able to give a general answer there, but I do think it's possible to make some intelligent uh, 
I won't say guesses, but some intelligent analysis of whether this is likely to be a problem or not. I thought you were about to say, Dave, is that an ecosystem is like those children's toys that are tensegrity structure, where you pull on one thing, you're pulling them on others, bits and pieces. And so if you introduce a species that does a brilliant job of moving around seeds, there may be other unintended consequences. Uh, living in California in San Mateo County, I dutifully pay my $3.98 mosquito abatement fee every year because I don't want to be bitten by a mosquito, but there are other organisms that are, are counting on that for dinner. So you can't, it, it's, it's actually, I did not become an ecologist because I find it so overwhelmingly complex. And so my hat's mm -hmm. off to people who do no. become ecologists. And we, you, it is very, very difficult to predict. So, James, what I'm more concerned about with the moving ecosystem problem is not whether the, the target species will succeed or not, but whether its roles will change a lot. So we've talked some already about some of these de-extincted species might change nutrient cycling, for example, when they're reintroduced into a system. There's twice as much reactive nitrogen on the planet now as there was uh, 100 years ago. And so the whole nutrient status of the planet has changed. And, and, and so, you know, if you say something like, is more nitrogen good or bad? And the answer is completely, it depends. Completely, it depends. In some cases, more nitrogen leads to eutrophication and dead zones and things like that. In other cases, it increases the productivity of the food web. And so uh, I, I'm less concerned about being able to predict whether a species will succeed than assuming that the role that it played a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, ten thousand years ago, is the same role it'll play today or tomorrow. When analyzing ecosystem impact, you're hearing a lot of it depends. And while you may wish there were more concrete prognoses, this is the reality of proper science. If we simply don't know for sure, we need to acknowledge that, which is what is happening here. And if a certain outcome depends on a variety of variables that are really hard to isolate, well, we need to acknowledge that as well. It's important, though, that we do not use a relative unknown outcome as a reason for doing something. In fact, I would argue we typically should only do something when we have a strong scientific reason to believe the outcome is going to be positive and a plan to mitigate the negatives. If we have a reason to think it's going to be negative or we don't know for certain either way and don't have a great plan for mitigating those possibilities, what's well, usually best to err on the side of caution. Another big issue to tackle are the protocols and governance issues. Who is going to decide what the rules are? Who is going to be responsible if things don't go as planned? What about when a de-extinction decision from one country or community has an unexpected impact on another? Again, species don't exist as islands, and they don't stay stationary either. Successful species grow and expand their territory. So the topic of governance is a really important one here. You know, as this technology becomes sort of more widespread, as technologies do, right, any technology starts really difficult and it, you know, to, to a degree commoditizes over time. Who is, who would set the protocols? How, how do we ensure that like, you know, there is some system of governance that is uniform. We have a hard enough time agreeing on things within our own country, sometimes within our own household. <laughs> um, so I, I, it's hard for me to have faith that we're going to have agreement 
as a kind of a, on a global system on, on rules around de-extinction um, and protocols for reintroduction and, um, and management and all of these things. How, how do we think about that problem? So let's just assume that the technology is here. It's, it's, it's going to keep um, improving and it's going to keep getting less expensive um, and more accessible as technologies do. How do we approach the kind of the governance um, issue, the protocols and, and, and yeah, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around how that would even, it's how it's possible that that is going to go smoothly. Well, I mean, we already have, we, we can take present protocols to, to give us some kind of guide, right? So you can look at international treaties and they're kind of wishy-washy. Some people obey them. Like you could look at say the Antarctic treaty, right? Most people kind of obey it mostly. Um, or it hasn't worked out well for the Antarctic. I mean, it's probably worked out better than nothing, but I mean, it's, it's, that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a more or less low bar. Um, chances are, it's probably going to be national governments will set national policies because there's many national governments, like try telling China how they're going to run their de-extinction program or Russia or the U S they're basically going to say, no, we're doing it our way. The U S might play a little bit more ball than the others because there's going to be pressure from their uh, EU allies and from, say, democracies around the world to try and at least look responsible on an international stage. But countries that really don't care, Iran, China, Russia, that kind of don't have a huge number of friends internationally, they're going to basically say, well, we're going to do it our way um, and we'll set national guidelines and we'll set national standards for how we're going to do this. And we're not going to have the Americans or the Europeans coming in and telling us how to run our own country and our own ecosystems. So probably it's going to be devolved to national level legislation with perhaps some overall uh, global wishy-washy kind of treaty, some kind of uh, Kyoto protocol or COP summit kind of thing where we all meet and everybody shakes hands and we kind of try and do set some sort of broad rules that people sort of mostly follow, I would suspect. Um, but even then the question is, is it bad if interna- uh, national governments decide on their own policies? Because, of course, their ecosystem is going to be wildly different um, and their priorities are going to be wildly different. Their development level, economic development levels are going to be wildly different. So a broader, say, set of rules decided by bureaucrats in Brussels as the, the what do you call them, Eurosceptics, so like to say, or uh, globalists as the, the right wing in, in the US likes to say, um, the question is, are, are those uh, kind of ideas going to be necessarily applicable to smaller level individual uh, governments, and I, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other, but I certainly think that it bears considering um, whether a broad international approach is ideal or whether more nuanced national level policies are going to be a better fit for deciding on rules of the road, as it were. James, I, I, I have a little difficulty with the premise of your question because I feel that it created a situation where one automatically imagines, um, you know, a herd of mammoths in front of you. The fact is, and I think even the people who work on this, you know, and believe in this the most realize we're not going to recreate a mammoth because we don't have a complete genome. We would have great difficulty getting an elephant to bear, a com- you know, a, a complete mammoth. So really what you're doing is what I like to call therapeutic de-extinction. You're taking isolated genes. And it's not a matter of stopping that technology. That's the sort of stuff my students 
DIY labs do in synthetic biology, put genes into um, pieces of DNA. And it may be for something as benign as showing high school students how to make glowing bacteria, or it may be something that's enormously beneficial, like giving a plant the ability to withstand a pathogen. I mean, these are just basic technologies they're using. The only one that they really aren't, you know, isn't used in a microbiology lab like mine would be actually then implanting an embryo into a host and, and all that that involves. Um, so if you start on this premise that you're really just adding a certain number of genes, what's wrong with adding a gene or two? As one of my colleagues said, if we get to the point with humans where we identify a single gene for mathematical ability and you go to um, a genetic counselor before you have have children and they say, look, it's going to be $25 for musical ability and $50 so that they're top in their class in math. Are we going to reach a point where we say, well, we would be, you know, we would be remiss as parents. How much better would it be to spend 20 or five or $40 to make sure that they're to top in their class instead of a tutor later? This, it's not, these are all technologies that are used for multiple ways and Again, maybe if we had an elephant that had one or two more genes that made it more resistant to the cold, that's something that, that maybe a lot of people could get behind so that we could move them to other places or you know, pick an animal or a plant or a protist or whatever that you have a little bit more power in some way or another, um, you know, whether it's temperature or a little bit more longevity or more musical ability or whatever. And so at what point are we going to draw the line and say, this is the extinction that we're unhappy with versus something that's therapeutic. We've taken care of sickle cell anemia. We've taken care of lactose intolerance or something that that's a single gene issue. But this is an area where I think our history with invasive species is actually instructive. So uh, invasive species have caused uh, very large ecological and economic damage. Uh, the, in the U.S., the estimate is more than $100 billion, billion with a B, dollars a year. The people who made the decisions uh, to bring those species in, whether it was to bring in untreated wooden packing materials or untreated ballast water or birds they thought would be attractive. Those, were, those decisions are made usually by one or a few people, and they're not the same people who paid the damages. The bag holders pay the damages. So in an ideal world, the people who would make these decisions about regulations and laws would be the bag holders. We have a terrible record of involving, I, I know I'm supposed to call them stakeholders, but I'm going to call them bag holders because that's who they are. We have a terrible record of in, involving them. And one of the problems is national governance. So the people in the lower Mekong are paying damages right now from China's hydroelectric dams up, up river, right? They weren't consulted about this. And so to me, actually one of the most challenging things about this whole de-extinction argument is, could we ever get there? Could we ever get to a, uh, a system of uh, consultation and governance that would work on issues like this. It is only one planet that we're dealing with here. And if Canada decides to de-extinct the passenger pigeon, we get them too. Um, and, and, and so I, I'm, I'm not a politician or a diplomat or anything like that, but I would, I would love to think that this de-extinction, along with some of the climate geoengineering things, for example, 
I would love to see us get to the point where we had a system where the bag holders were part of the decision-making process and not just six people who think they're smart. We, we've had a history of six, the six people who think they're smart and it doesn't work. Yeah, that's a really, really valid point. It's something that, you know, I think is also even evident, you know, a couple weeks ago, a cop, right? Um, you know, uh, the, the lack of representation continues to be an issue um, at copy, you know, they're, they're trying to do, do better, but but yes, we don't have a history of doing that well. Finally, we save maybe the most important topic for our community, at least here for the end. What is the role of de-extinction in terms of our climate and biodiversity crises? To tee up this discussion, we highlighted Pleistocene Park in northeastern Siberia. Now, tens of thousands of years ago, this area was a sprawling grassland dominated by large herbivores, including woolly mammoths, regularly grazing and migrating, essentially harvesting grasslands and keeping the biological cycle strong and, and moving. As humans settled in some 14,000 years ago and wiped out these large herbivores, well, that biological cycle started slowing down. And with it, the grasslands started to lose out to less productive vegetation, such as moss and shrubs, and slower growing species, such as taller trees. Fast forward to today, this changed Siberian ecosystem is absorbing more heat in the soil, which is putting the permafrost underneath it at risk of eroding. Well, that's a big problem, because if that happens, potentially 60 billion tons of methane and over 500 billion tons of carbon could be unleashed in the atmosphere. Now, the theory behind Pleistocene Park is to bring back these ungulate species to graze again in hopes of returning this ecosystem to the more productive grasslands it once was. Today, that is happening in the form of rewilding bison, yaks, reindeer, amongst others. And there are signs it is working. The 20 square kilometers of the park are showing signs of cooler soil and slowing down the permafrost thaw, although it's still early and nowhere near at scale. This is also the park and thesis behind George Church and Colossal's work to bring back the hybrid woolly mammoth. I can't see um, de-extinction not having some, uh, of course there may, be, they, there may be impacts, but Certainly for, for maintaining, say, Siberian permafrost, I can't see any better solution. Uh, sort of, uh, maybe not mammoths, but I mean, mammoths are kind of one aspect of a broader rewilding kind of situation. But I mean, if you can more or less return that ecosystem to a kind of step ecosystem, remove the trees, ensure that there's uh, lots of chilly winter air touching the soil because the herbivores are, are, are grazing at such high scales. Um, personally, for, uh, from what I've seen of the, the kind of climatic data that they're basing it on and the, the kind of ecological modeling that they're kind of doing, I, I can't see any better way of maintaining the methane because there just doesn't seem to be any other method and it doesn't look like we'll keep below two degrees, uh, 1.5 degrees, maybe we'll keep below two, maybe we won't, I highly doubt we'll keep below two, who knows? Um, so I, I think it could be a, a generally a generally useful out of the box kind of uh, solution to that. But but as as Dave said, in many of these cases, and it's yeah, it's like a I personally agree, and I'm gonna go with it as well. It's a, a Weasley ecologist answer. Is it's like absolutely dependent on the system you're dealing with. In some systems, it's going to be really really useful, and in other systems, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. You know, this is a long ways from what I, I know about. Uh, I have not seen uh, quantitative analysis uh, of, uh, of, of this uh, conversion to step approach. And I'd be interested to see uh, how, how quick this could be ramped up. 
and how large an effect there might be produced. I mean, it's going to take a lot of uh, a lot of square kilometers, right, to to for this to for this to work. The other point I'd make is that there is a little bit of a moral hazard here that if uh, if if people say, well, the mammoths are going to save us, so I can keep driving my big car. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think it'd be a huge mistake that as 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 wonderful as the potential of de-extinction might be for some things, uh, it 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 we sure shouldn't count on as a substitute to to dig us out of this hole that we're in with climate. Well, so following up on that, that's that was going to be my point exactly. That one of the things that I hope comes from this is the realization that this is very difficult thing to do and perhaps impossible, and. Honestly, in the years that I've known George, I do believe that there's been some backsliding from saying that they were going to create a full-blown mammoth to, well, we're changing a few genes here and there. And that maybe with this realization that this is not an easy thing to do and perhaps shouldn't be done, that there would be a renewed focus on conservation. Um, it's almost like the overview effect, looking at the earth and realizing, you know, here we are in our little pale blue dot and that we better take care of it. And so that's one of the things I hope would come from it. Um, Mackenzie, I know that there are a whole lot of other ecosystem services that would be put on the shoulder, broad shoulders of the mammoths if they were to return. But honestly, I live in the woods and if I want to get rid of trees, my first thought isn't, why don't we bring up a herd of mammoths? My first thought is chainsaw. You know, there are other ways to maneuver an ecosystem if, you, if you're just looking to move around some nitrogen and trample on the snow and, and remove some trees. Um, and so I don't, I, I think knowing that that is what needs to be done is, is a hugely beneficial first step. But those things don't have to be done by a de-extincted mammoth. We've got other ways to, to do the same sort of thing. An important point here to remember, we have many existing species we can protect and rewild. Just as Yellowstone benefited tremendously from rewilding wolves back in 1995, Pleistocene Park is seeing benefits from existing species such as ox and reindeer. Who's to say that they need the mammoths to solve their goals? If I could bring up one other point, I, I feel a little bit like these de-extinction and potentially rewilding discussions are a little bit like you know, a menu in a Chinese restaurant, you've got, oh, wouldn't this be animal would be great for this and this one great for that? And you're now potentially talking about things that never live together, particularly if you sort of have these half breeds. And so we, we want to think, oh, we're turning this into uh, back to some sort of state of nature and state of grace. And we've washed our hands of the guilt of killing off the mammoths or whatever, but you're now creating a completely artificial ecosystem, which you know, sort of ties in with some of the comments right at the beginning. We don't know what their microbiome was like. We don't know about their associated lights. We don't. And, and some of these things, in spite of whatever beautiful artwork you may have seen in a museum, did not happily coexist at the same watering hole together. And so I think that we're also fooling ourselves a little bit into this idea that we are returning whatever environment to some sort of state of grace. I mean, honestly, the world's natural state is being anaerobic. It was microbes that polluted it and turned it into 21% oxygen atmosphere. So we are, to some extent, picking and choosing what we want to call natural and, and create. Well, speaking as an aerobe, I would reject the whole uh, anaerobic world idea. Thank you. Uh, but it does, it, it raised for me. And, and know, me thinking, too. Th this week, uh, you know, thinking about this stuff, James, uh, it, it, 
you know, if we're prepared to to take a creature that's never existed before, this mammophant, uh, then then are we really thinking about moving to a designer world and uh, where you could say, well, we're going to, we want things that uh, sequester carbon, uh, are good to eat, uh, are pretty to look at, and 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 we're willing to, you know, just because uh, to me that's kind of the next step is to say, well, we we have this whole uh, catalog of extant species. Any of these extant species now can be engineered a little bit, like with the chestnut, for example. And uh, and, and and I'm wondering if that's you know I'm an old man now, but I'm wondering if if uh, 50 years from now we're going to be thinking about you know, the de-extinction thing is going to look like a very small debate in the, in the sort of designer ecosystem uh, in, in world. I'm wondering if that's where we're going. Yeah, I'll let I you know what happens, Dave. Valid point. Uh, what, what was that, Mackenzie? I'll let you know what happens, Dave, in 50 years. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks. We'll have a seance, okay? I'll knock once. Once means yes, twice is no, okay? Perfect. <laughs> Well, in fairness, I mean, humans have been humans have been breeding animals and plants for well over 10,000 years. And to some extent, we've now created designer dogs and designer this and designer that. Right. And so all we're talking about, to some extent, is having a way to do that much more quickly and more surgically right. and in a wilder way. Right. And in physical engineering, too. But I think what we're seeing is a, a sort of a, a rapid acceleration of our abilities. We don't, I mean, a few hundred years ago, we had shovels and chicken breeding. And, uh, and, and we're, we're, you know, really moving rapidly to these, uh, uh, to, to, to these really much stronger abilities. And I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering if that's where we're going. Are people comfortable with that? How are we going to manage that? Uh, that sort of thing. I'm sorry, I'm off topic. No, it's not off topic at all. I actually think, you know, to some degree, I think our movement towards that is inevitable, as is our movement towards singularity uh, as well. Um, so I, I, it's sort of going to happen, I think. Um, and to the point over the last 10,000 years, it has been happening, right? And it's just happening at an at, at, at a increased pace and increased ability. It's hard to see us sort of putting a cap on our own ability to create. Um, we don't, or certainly do not have a history of, of doing that well as a species either, of putting limitations on ourselves. So um, I think it's going, it got, it's going to happen. And the, the question is, is, you know, what are the ramifications going to be? And, and to some degree, as, you, as you've all laid out, it, it's very dependent on um you know where it's being done and what's being done there is no kind of uniform rule here but I, I think this has been a super valuable discussion and one that i i hope you know keeps happening and and hopefully the, the listeners here have, have gotten a chance to certainly be better introduced into the topic of the extinction and 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 why it's why it's important to be talking about and to be thinking about because it's you know uh it's it's we are on the precipice of taking a leap so to speak in in, in that technology, but um, yeah, any any sort of final words from you from you all? Any sort of uh, last takeaway you, you'd want the listeners here to 
kind of come away with from your, your point of view? I think that de-extinction is not necessarily something to be terribly feared. I think it's like all technology, it's something to be considered carefully. I think Dave's comment that are basically doing de-extinction is kind of like going to the moon and the, the technology we generate to facilitate the journey will have so many more broad reaching applications that it's almost worth playing with simply for the fun tools that we'll get. So we got all these, a, a huge number of tools from NASA's moonshot, things that we still use today. Like, I don't know, toothpaste, I think was, was one of the like big ones, like toothpaste in a tube. That's so useful. We all use that every day. Maybe it's, maybe I'm not wrong. Am I wrong, Lynn? <laughs> I'm not I, sure. I, I, I can tell I, you I think... that. <laughs> I'm not sure, but the, the swept back wing um, for an airplane was a NASA invention. Um, there, I mean, so there's so many, there's so many things, but sure. But my point being someone who does this kind of work, not necessarily for de-extinction beyond single cells or, or particular genes, this is good. This is much, much harder, I think, than people think. At a low level, swapping out a gene or two is easy. When you're starting to talk about large numbers, particularly when you've got an animal that needs to go through development and behavioral um, development and so on, I think what you are likely to see out of this is, is creatures that are very, very much like um, extant ones. They're going to be very minor changes. And so it, it, in a genetic sense, it may be morphologically, you've got long hair or whatever, but there are going to be very, very few changes. And again, what my hope is out of this is that we get our hand on the little changes because there are times that it could be useful where you have a coffee plant that's more resistant to a pest or, or whatever sort of things that we're already doing. Um, and that people sit back and say, you know, we don't really have a plan B. We need to stick with plan A, and that is to take care of what we already have. Yeah, you said it well early in the in this chat, Lynn, where and I, I talk about this a lot with, with my friends. The best case scenario of life on Mars is likely the worst case scenario of life on Earth. Um, and I, I think that's an important reminder as we sort of think of Mars as the, some people think of Mars as the solution that has already been determined as like, well, that's clearly what we need to be focusing on. And there is a incredibly rare and special and unique uh, planet <laughs> that we are inhabiting um, that uh, we absolutely have the potential still to preserve and to, and to uh, thrive in. Um, the hope is not lost by any means on, on, on this planet. Um, so I, I, I want always people to, to be reminded that, we have so many challenges ahead of us, but they, they are not insurmountable. There's no reason to think that, you know, that the fate has already been determined um, that life will expire on this planet. Cause I, sometimes the rhetoric around the climate crisis can be so hopeless. Um, and so, and so sort of, uh, and that's a lot of, a lot of stuff that gets clicks on the internet, right? Because fear, fear mongering, we know does really well <laughs> um, from a, from a attention grabbing standpoint. Um, but I think it is important to remind ourselves that there's a lot of work to do, but it can be done. And the three of you are obviously working on that in your own regards um, in your own respective ways, but it's important to sort of remind folks of that. Well, I appreciate the time from all of you. And as I always say to guests like yourselves, I appreciate the work you do. All of us are thankful 
that people like you exist uh, doing the, the, the super challenging uh, work that you, that you've dedicated yourselves to. And, um, we all, we all benefit from it. Uh, even if we, we don't understand the, the linchpins of how we do, um, uh, we all do. So I, I appreciate the, the time, uh, the discussion, it's super valuable. And, uh, if there's any links you'd like, uh, for folks to sort of follow up on as they listen to this, feel free to send them to me and I'll include them in the, the podcast notes. I know people a lot of, a lot of times listen and they want to follow up and, and learn more on their own time. So if anything comes to mind, let me know. And, uh, we will, we will all sort of watch, um, with, uh, with, with intense interest over, uh, how this topic evolves over the next five, 10, 20, 50 years. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, thank you. Thank you again for the time and, and for participating today and for the work you do. A big time thanks to Lynn, Mackenzie, and David for joining us today. What an important discussion and an interesting one as well. As always, thank you for supporting Animalia, and thank you for any and all you do to protect this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life on it. Till next time.